Matthew 7, and you follow in your copies as I read you. Beginning at verse 1, we're going to read a rather lengthy passage. We'll read 27 verses. You follow as I read. Matthew 7, at verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits." Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it was it had been founded on the rock and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God, that that endures forever. Over the past month uh, or so, what I've done is try to introduce you, introduce to you um, in a very cursory way, the Sermon on the Mount, um, perhaps one of the most famous sections and portions of the scriptures. Uh, my my um, my hope was that we could benefit by our just our quick look at it, but I also a part of my motive was to to explain to you a little bit about what I'm going to be doing in the Czech Republic after Easter. Uh, my assignments kind of uh, twofold. I'm, there's a technical part that I'm supposed to teach just the content of the Sermon on the Mount to those pastors. 
The other part is somewhat practical. Um, I'm supposed to help them in sermon construction, so don't tell them that I really don't know much about that. But that's what I'm supposed to help them with there, too. But what we've done in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is that I introduced Matthew 5, and I told you then that it's a, it's a, it's a description of a kingdom. You, remember, you, you might remember that we looked at chapter 4, verse 23, where Jesus is preaching the kingdom. And then he begins this Sermon on the Mount. This is not about a church plant, gang. This is, I mean, Jesus didn't come to plant a church. He didn't come to, um, to start a religious movement. He came to announce a kingdom. This is a kingdom that we're a part of. And, and um, obviously that implies that there's a king. And so we moved to chapter 6. And I tried to point out in chapter 6 that the king is one that is called father. The, the term father is used 12 times in chapter 6, which I think is rather um, impressive. Anytime you've got something repeated that often, there's something going on. And so 12 times um, God is referred to as father, four times as heavenly father in Matthew chapter 6. And so what I did is try to show you that Matthew 6 is a description of a family. And we talked about a family portrait. You might have remember some of that. We come to chapter 7 this morning, and, and it really does not offer us a, a uh, central motif around which we might organize our thoughts. And the reason is, most people who uh, write commentaries on the scriptures would tell you that the sermon itself is over at verse 12. Jesus' sermon is over at verse 12, and then in verse 13... It's the application. It's the conclusion. And the conclusion is he begins to plead with his audience to enter. He begins in verse 13 and says, um, enter uh, by the narrow gate. And so what he does from there to the end of chapter 7 is plead with his audience to enter into this kingdom. So you really have just two halves of, of a chapter. You have what I'm calling the blight on the family, verses 1 through 12. And then from verses 13 on, uh, a section that I'm calling the choice of a family or a choosing a family. And that's how we'll divide this text up in just two parts. So we take a look first at what I've called the blight on the family. Now, guys, I don't want you to miss the fact that in verses 3 through 5, um, Jesus mentions the term brother three times. The point being, he's still got family on the mind. He's still talking to um, folks in a family. And he mentions something that very much concerns him about the family. Something that is a what I called, as I said, a blight on the family. And what is it? In verses 1 through 5, he talks about the tendency among Christians to be hypercritical one of the other. The, the propensity on our part to engage in s- harsh judgments of each other. I can't believe how much money those people spend over at Starbucks. Said by someone who just spent $6,000 on a cruise. Now guys, neither of those are any of our business. But we Christians have found a way to make it our business. And thus we have become somewhat censorious with one another. 
You know, you've heard me quote Madeline Murray O'Hare, who says that the Christian church is the place where we shoot our own wounded. Oh, boy. Mm. Well, that, of course, is the exact opposite of what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 13 when he talks about how we're supposed to be in love with one another. You know, the the New Testament talks about love covers a multitude of sins, but not us. Oh, no. No, instead of covering, we would, we're, we're more adept at exposing. We know little of exercising mercy or cutting people slack. We're, in a word, judgmental. The, in essence, we take over God's job. We claim a competence and an authority to sit in judgment over other men. Hey guys, it, it, it really left a mark on me that of all of the subjects that Jesus could have included in terms of his concerns for his family, of all of the things that he could have mentioned in this, the Magna Carta of the Christian faith, his first sermon, that one of the things that he mentions as a concern of his about what goes on among us is this. What I want to do is that I want to give you six reasons, or make it seven. I want to give you seven reasons to not do this. And hopefully um, we can... We can eliminate part of the blight that seems to be a part of our treatment of one another. Let me give you seven reasons why not to do this. First of all, um, gang, if we pose as judges, we cannot then plead ignorance of the law that we claim to be able to administer. Now, let me illustrate my point. I've got an acquaintance that I work out with down at the Germantown Community Center, and he's a judge. He's a retired judge. He's a good guy, a real affable fellow, and and I think a brother in the Lord, a nice guy. And and, um, he was telling me the other day that he's retired, but he's doing a little moonlighting. I didn't know judges moonlighted, but this guy does. And um, his his moonlighting consists of um, performing his services in the Germantown traffic court, which means so many of you have met my friend. Um, and, and, um, and I may be meeting him one day myself. But um, um, anyway, let's imagine that we are he, him, we're him. And we're driving through Germantown one night and, you know, going 50 and a 35. And, and those infamous blue lights are in the rearview mirror. And we pull over and the officer walks up to our window. We let down our window. And he says, sir, can I see your, your driver's license? He says, do you know that you were speeding? And we say, what? I didn't know. Sir, aren't you the judge that, that handles the traffic court? How could you possibly plead ignorance? You see, that's the point. Guys, if we claim to be able to administer the law, 
We can't claim that we're ignorant of it once we stand before the judge. And it means, it means that there's going to be a severe judgment for us. That's what James says. He says, let not many of you become teachers knowing that as such, you will incur a stricter judgment. If I, if I tell you I know what is true and then try to claim ignorance, it won't work. Here's the second reason why not to be guilty of this. Um, verse 2 says that we set our own standard. That is, we set our own standard for judgment. Look, it says, for with the judgment you pronounced, you will be judged. We establish the standard by which we ourselves will be judged. Um, severity is what you want. Then severity it will be. For you and me. One of the things that we do by our harsh judgments is that we, um, we set the standard for ourselves. Here's a third reason. And this is, um, well, we're, we're, the third reason is that we're law-guide. Well, um, or a word that you might understand is, I made that one up, uh, is incapable. And the image that Jesus uses in verses 3 through 5 is just almost downright comical. You've, you've heard of this before, the speck and the log and all that business. Let me, let me paint it out for you. Let's imagine that you've got an, a, a, an appointment with an ophthalmologist, and you, you go to the doctor and you're complaining about, there just always seems to be something in my eye. There's just something wrong here. And the doctor's in the examining room, and he's got his back to you, and he's over on the other side of the room taking down all these things as you're telling him about your, your, your condition. And then when you finish telling him, he turns around, and there's a big two-by-four sticking out of his eye. Well, guys, um, with a real note of sarcasm, Christ, I think, is pointing out that, um, you know, gang, uh, if we were so concerned about somebody else's spec, what we really ought, what we ought to concern ourselves with first is the big thing sticking out of our eye. Folks, um, if, if I'm not concerned to do anything about the law coming out of my own eye, well, why, how can I claim any legitimate concern about the speck in yours? That's the image that he mentions there. Here's a fourth tendency or a fourth reason not to engage in harsh criticism. Gang, we have a, we have a fatal tendency to exaggerate the faults of others, while at the same time minimizing um, the gravity of our own faults. That is, we see our foibles in the best of all possible lights, while we see yours in the worst of all possible lights. I mean, for example, you lie. But I'm a very complex individual. You lost your temper, but I have low blood sugar. I, I, I tend to view my actions in the best of all possible lights and yours in the worst. Wow. Um, here's the fifth reason not to engage in harsh critiques. 
Because often, gang, what we're doing is just seeing our own faults in others. We, we have a very keen eye to see what we're doing in the lives of somebody else, and we can judge them vicariously. That way, we can experience the pleasure of self-righteousness without the pain of penitence. Um, I just hate it when people gossip, don't you? Well, guys, maybe one of the reasons that you're so sensitive to gossip is... Fill in the blank. Here's a, here's a sixth reason. Censoriousness, gang, was the trademark of Pharisees. <laughs> Pharisees loved to exalt themselves by disparaging others. It was kind of a, a, a cheap way to, uh, to attain moral superiority. You know, elevating me while, while lowering you. You know, I can get bigger if I make you smaller. It's just a subtle form of self-exaltation, guys, is all it is. Our harsh judgments, that is. It's a way to elevate us by lowering you. And here's the seventh reason that we may not want to engage in harsh judgments one of the other. is because the last word that Jesus uses, he says, you hypocrite. By the way, I do want to point out that it's Jesus who said that because I would never dream of calling you a hypocrite. Because you know how we all hate to be called hypocrites. Um... Guys, uh, that's what I'm calling the blight on the Christian family. It's the blight among brothers that we are prone to exercise and engage in harsh judgments one or the other. Um, and we are all so guilty, aren't we? Guys, um, we need to get off God's throne. Um, he's in charge. We're not. My responsibility is to love you, not judge you. Um, and the pleasure that we may get out of harsh critiques is a very wicked thing. And I say that because of all of the things that Jesus could have used to mention in this sermon, the fact that he went out of his way to include this. I think it says, I think it says tons about the issue itself. So I've given you seven reasons, hopefully, that will help us move beyond harsh critiques of one another. By the way... Um, there is a parenthesis here from verses 7 through 11. It's a parenthesis with a real punch because Jesus has just condemned our condemning one another. And then he inserts rather awkwardly this call to pray as if to say, hey, guys, you're going to really need to pray in this battle against the family blight.
Um, and then he concludes in that verse 12, which, the, which is the, the golden rule. You remember that? You know, you don't want people to harshly judge you, do you? Then don't do it yourself. Uh, you want people to give you the benefit of the doubt? Yes, then give it. That's the, um, the moral direction of the golden, uh, the golden rule. And it's attached to this issue of harsh judgments that we inflict on each other. That's what I've called the blight on the family. But in verse 13, we're introduced to what I'm calling the choice of a family. The sermon's over. End of sermon. Now Jesus comes to the the place where he's pleading with his audience to enter in, to choose a family. Um, It's his application. It's his conclusion. He's, in essence, saying the time for a decision has arrived. Um, And the emphasis now in these closing verses is on making a choice. And he, and he does it in four different ways, guys. He, he says, he lays out the options with four different illustrations. He says there are two ways or roads. He says that there are two kinds of teachers. There's two kinds of claims. And there's two kinds of, two kinds of foundations. And he's saying, in the midst of all that, those illustrations, I am pleading with you to enter into the kingdom. Let's, let's take a quick look at all four of them. The first one has to do with, a, he, the text calls it a way. What it, the better word, at least I think we would understand, is a road. There's two kinds of roads. One of the roads, um, if, if, you're, if you're interested, it's in uh, verses 13 and 14. There's two kinds of roads, and the first road is, is wide, it's easy, and it's crowded. There's plenty of room on this particular road for, for a diversity of opinion and, and, and laxity of morals. It, it's a road of tolerance, it's a road of permissiveness, it's a road of relativism. No need to renounce or resist or denounce anything. And it's very densely populated, congested even. There's only one problem. It leads to destruction. As compared to the other road, which is narrow, it's hard, there's only a few on it, it has uh, clearly marked boundaries, apparently, and it, and it doesn't start narrow and then widen up as you go. No, no, it starts narrow and it stays narrow. And there's only a few that are on that one. The difference is, it leads to life. If you would permit me just for a quick minute, an autobiographical note. That was the text that was preached the night that both my wife and myself became Christians. In 1970, that text about a broad road and a narrow road, that's it. That's the one that God used to 
draw me to himself and my wife. And I remember sitting there. And as this was being explained to me, in a whole lot better, more detail than I'm explaining it, I knew, I knew which road I was on. And it wasn't the one that led to life. I knew, and I, I had prayed this week because I love this text. I have prayed that one of you might sense, oh my, I'm on the wrong road. I'm on the one that's wide and that's easy and that's crowded. And if I continue on it, I'm going to be destroyed. But again, what Jesus is doing is that he's, he's pleading with his audience to make a choice. And there's two roads in front of you. Now, here's a description of one. Here's a description of the other. Time to make a choice. Which one you're going to get on? Do it now. Then he moves to the issue of two different kinds of teachers. There's a false teacher and there's a true teacher. And, and um, um, the false teacher who is dangerous, he's deceptive, he's cunning, and he, uh, he preaches kind of a, an amoral optimism like you find in Jeremiah and Ezekiel where the false prophets would say to Israel, peace, peace. And Jeremiah said, there is no peace. Um, these guys, their, their lifelong message is designed to take the, the narrow road and widen it. And then there's the true prophet or the true teacher. And guys, the distinctive, the distinctive that will enable you to pick out whether they're false or true is what it produces. What it promotes. What is the product? What is the fruit is the language here. What, what does the teaching produce? That'll tell you whether it's false or true. Let, let me give you an example. Islam. Islam's um, chief prophet advises his audience that they need to kill the infidel. And uh, so people who are adherents to that prophet take devices, strap them to their bodies, and not only do they commit suicide, but they kill countless numbers of innocent bystanders. And that behavior is not only promoted, it is applauded. Now tell me, do you think that's good fruit or bad fruit? Because if it's bad fruit, it's going to tell you something about the prophet, isn't it? That's what this text says. That the way that you distinguish between a false and a true prophet is by what it produces. Not how many adhere to it. His third illustration 
I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, is the scariest, at least for me, it is the scariest text in the entire Bible. For me. It has to do with two kinds of claims. Two claims. Um, verses 21 through 23. One of the claims, or actually, it's only one that's mentioned. But by implication, you can understand what the other claim would be or would look like. This claim is emphatic. Lord, Lord. It is confident. It is passionate. It is religious looking. I mean, there's a lot of religious stuff associated with this particular claim. Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do great works in your name? But it was lacking obedience. And Jesus says to that claim, I will reply. Depart from me. I never knew you. Gang, think about that. Don't let that wash over you without... The claim is emphatic. It is confident. It is passionate. And it is religious. And it is false. And the thing that it was missing is an ever-increasing desire to obey. So there's two kinds of claims. One that produces a life that longs to be more and more obedient. and, And another kind of claim that looks awfully, awfully good in a lot of ways. But it's false. And then his last illustration has to do with foundations. Verses 24 to 27. You know this story. Uh, this is a great little, it's not a parable. I guess it's somewhat parabolic. But, but it's about building a house. It's about things that are foundational. That is, what is in view here is that which is foundational to the building of a spiritual house. Uh, what, what this little illustration is trying to describe is, or answer is, how is a religious life built? How does one build one of those things? And, and interestingly, guys, both of these people in this last illustration, they both want a spiritual house. They both want that. The question is, how do you go about building one? How does one go about building a religious life? you got two options. You can build it on the sand, which means you can do it quickly. You can, it's only, it's real shallow. It's rather easy. It's cheap. Uh, not a whole lot of cost involved. Um, quick, easy, cheap, shallow. And all of that language, guys, is intended on the part of Jesus to describe somebody who hears the word of God and does nothing about that. That's what the text says. Um, Verse 26, 
And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. That is describing a, a, a person who has desires for religious life. But who hears. And that's the end of it. They're like people who build a house on sand. And then the other house, the other way of building a religious life is on a different foundation. It's on a rock. That means the process will be long. It will be hard. That you're going to have to dig deep. And it's going to cost you. And that is describing in verse 24. One who not only hears those words, but but does them. Does them. Does them. And the question that that would seek to address is, which, which one of these do you think will prepare you for the storm? He looks at his audience and he says, in essence, are you ready for the storm? When it arrives, will you stand? What will become of you when the rain falls and the floods come and the winds blow? Will your spiritual house stand? Gang, in all four of those illustrations, all four of them, Jesus presents only two options. There's not a third. There's only two. So what he's asking of his audience is that they determine which road they're on, which teacher they believe, what kind of claim they make, and what it produces, and how have they built what is foundational to their whole religious life. And then he turns to his audience and says, Enter in. And so I turn to mine. And I say to you, For heaven's sake, Enter in. Don't miss the kingdom. Our Father, I do pray that you will alert your people to the, um, the searching truths contained in this text. One uh, seemingly addressed to your people, telling us of the ugliness of our harsh critiques. The other part telling perhaps those who have not yet entered the kingdom where they are and really what they're up to and that they're about to miss out. When the storm arrives, their house will not stand and they're about to miss out on the kingdom. And I pray, O God, 
that as you did with my wife and myself 36 years ago, that you'll do it again now, that you will convince men and women that they're on the wrong road. And if they continue on it, it will conclude in their own destruction. Father, open our eyes to see the beauty of this gospel of ours. And use what's been done here to add people to the kingdom. We ask it, of course, in Jesus' name.